Welcome to the Swamp Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon Ledet. I am Boomer. Hi, I'm Allie. And we are recording in three separate isolation chambers aboard the spaceship Nostromo. Uh, this is the podcast version of the movie review website, Swamp Flicks. And I kind of get what these Lanyap episodes are now. I was looking at this the other day. We, we've recorded over 40 of these um, since we started doing these extra episodes wow. with Boomer. And then Allie joined in with us not too long after that. I think what happens on the main show is uh, we have like a topic that we have like four movies an episode and we really go deep on each of them. Um, and on the Lanyap episodes, what we've been doing is flipping that. We more talk about all the things we've been watching separately and we pick one movie to just get us on the same page about. What I did wrong this week is I uh, opened up this floodgate where we could talk about potentially like seven or eight films. Um, so I almost feel like I've overwhelmed this uh, Lanyap format this episode where like there's almost too much on my plate. Um, I could spiral out forever. And that's after we get into what we've been watching separately. So I'm going to apologize in advance for just being very rambly this episode. I think we can we keep it in check before we uh, Please. throw you out the airlock. I feel like I will drift out into deep space unless y'all come and get me, and there will be horrific things waiting for you there. So uh, that's something to look forward to. Before we uh, get out into those um, deep space weeds, what else have y'all been watching since the last time we talked? I I guess I'll go first. Um, I finally got around to seeing Booksmart, uh, which came out a few years ago, and I thought was very funny. While watching it, I did think a lot about Plan B. And when we discussed Plan B previously, Brandon, you talked about how um, one character's queerness in that one was sort of like a surprise revelation at the halfway point, and how it was more common, even in films, that it was kind of uh, showing some you know, narrative deference to that sort of thing was often present from the beginning. And I guess this is probably one of the ones that you were thinking about. Definitely. Which I think is good. I think that the difference really between the two is that they do specifically make um, What's-Her-Name's character come from a Christian family. But I think that the fact that the equivalent character in Plan B also comes from a Christian family is important. But also, like, that specifically her father's a pastor and also that, you know, it it often can be harder to come out in... um, some families more than others. So I wasn't as distracted, but maybe I would have been if I had moved forward through time when watching those. I was surprised uh, by sort of this all-star cast. I It had Mason Gooding in it, who I most recently saw in Scream 5. He is one of the uh, kids in that one. He's actually uh, the nephew of Jamie Kennedy. Of You Got X'd fame? Yeah, or of, <laughs> of you know, uh, Randy from you know the screen series and they even brought back uh, as i don't know if any of y'all remember or maybe listeners do or maybe they don't but in screen three which is still the worst screen heather matarazzo shows up as randy's younger sister and she's like one of the few good great things about it and she delivers this like videotape right is she playing a teenager or an adult she is playing herself again she's playing that same character she's randy's sister but now she's an adult with her own two teenage children Ah, who are being okay. targeted as part of the most recent ghost face killings. But yeah, I really enjoyed Booksmart. Billy Lord really made that movie for me. I loved her in it. I, I kind of love her in anything, but she really is 
like a beautiful agent of chaos in this movie, and I liked that very much a lot. I saw another movie that was also from 2019 that I liked a lot less. Uh, it's a Tubi film, so you know if you're listening, you can watch it for free right now on Tubi. But it's called Devil's Path, and it's a movie that takes place in I want to say like 1992. It can't be like much further from that time period because there's a a Ross Perot 1992 election like. Uh, bumper sticker that's put up on a sign in the woods at one point but it takes place on a place you know a hiking trail called devil's path which is sort of a cruising spot and a couple of young men have gone missing in this area and so we meet these two other men one of whom seems to be a little bit sketchy and squirrely and antsy and another one who seems kind of practiced but suddenly they are seemingly attacked by two other men who are there and they flee deeper into the woods to try and escape these two men who are presumably sort of the killers of these other men who have gone missing in the woods but it's actually much more than that and that the two men who are on the run might be more one of them or both of them may have different ulterior motives. Uh, and that part of it was interesting until there's sort of a revelation close to the end about a character having sort of an incestuous relationship in a way huh. that kind of makes the whole thing feel gross. <laughs> uh, yeah. Hate it. Um, whenever this turning point comes... I thought that narratively what we were supposed to be learning was that this guy had been talking about his brother, but really it was like his lover and he had just been trying to like couch like and not really admit what sort of person he was or that, you know, deny that he was gay or whatever, or, like try to uh, keep up appearances that the person he was looking for who was his lover was actually his brother so as to avoid any kind of like interference. But no, it is that. It is that it's his brother and his, uh, yeah. So I can't say that I recommend it. It's, it has a really great first 90 minutes, um, or first 90% of its, uh, runtime. And then that last 10% is not great. And also, uh, somehow it ends up taking itself a little bit too seriously at the end. Like, it, there are moments where it almost seems like a dark comedy, but it never is quite, funny enough for that to be what's actually happening so I, I can say i don't recommend devil's path if you happen to be on tubi and you're looking for something that's similar to that or in that vein uh, maybe check out something else like maybe last fairy which is sort of similar but not as disappointing i also saw for the first time the movie Coraline. oh, oh whoa yeah. which i had never seen and matt was like oh you've never seen Coraline. we've got to watch Coraline." uh so we did and I really liked it. It's great. It's great. Yeah. Previously, we have talked about how I keep track of things and how it's a little bit um, insane. But, you know, every time I watch a new movie, I add it to like a spreadsheet, especially like, you know, a recent release. And then I give it a star rating so that at the end of the year, when we are putting together our end of the year lists, my system is kind of already ready to go. But I also started this year giving star ratings to things and just noting whether or not we had discussed it on the podcast so I wouldn't forget anything. 
and I gave five stars to both Booksmart and Coraline, um, as well as the the movie I'm going to talk about next. But I mean, I literally pay Letterboxd money to keep track of that for me, so I don't think that's insane at all. <laughs> um, I think that's like very. Um, I respect the organization because uh, sometimes I ask. I don't know like James for the next podcast topic. And he's like, uh, I don't even know what I've been watching lately. (laughs) So, um, I respect the organization for sure. But it sounds like everyone has positive feelings about Coraline here. Yes. Yeah. I think the Holy Trinity of like, Leica movies is like Coraline, Paranorman and Kubo and the two strings. Right. Yeah. Those are all excellent. I haven't seen either of those either. (gasps) I haven't seen Kubo and I haven't seen Paranorman. They're both on the same level. I think. Yeah. Okay. Are they also stop motion or are they yeah. Uh, yeah. computer? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah, the, uh, I think like some Nike CEO's like kid or nephew yep. um, just burns his dad's money on these like beautiful uh, stop motion projects that do not make any box office dollars. Exactly. Interesting. And they're always like in danger of just being no more. Just like constantly, everybody's like, it's like they're gonna shut down, especially here in town. We're like, no. <laughs> Because they, they're from here. From where oh, okay. Yeah, from Portland. I feel like they were um, took a big swing at like making a Disney-style movie with that Sasquatch film a couple years ago. And they're like, this is the one that's going to dig us out of the hole. Yeah. And they just dug deeper. It's like upsetting because <laughs> so, like, Kubo, you know, I don't understand why Kubo wasn't more popular. It should have been a hit. It should have. I haven't seen it. I, I, I remember when it came out. I think that was during the movie past days, so I probably should have seen it. But I don't know. I missed it somehow. I remember Coraline specifically came out like sort of during my last year of college when there wasn't really room in my life for that sort of like going to the movies. And it uh, had a lot of similarities. I felt like it felt very familiar to me as a Neil Gaiman story. And specifically as uh, it reminded me a lot of The Ocean at the End of the Lane. Yes. Have you read that one? Yep, I've read a whole it's lot so of Neil good. Gaiman. So uh, I remember quitting on him around the time I read Coraline, the book, because I was thinking like every single story is the same, like Alice down the rabbit hole structure, uh, and it got very repetitive. Like reading a bunch of his stuff in a row. Yeah, I had that same feeling whenever I was reading Clive Barker, where <laughs> anything longer than a short story, they all are kind of the same thing. Whether it's uh, Abarat or uh, Imagica or um, the Great and Secret show, or and its sequel, they all sort of start to feel like the same. And this one was... So I kind of feel like uh, Coraline is more of a child's version of the story. Like It is. The book is about a kid, but I don't think it's for children. It is. Um, so I read it, actually, in my children's fantasy literature class that I took. Oh, really? Okay. And it is like super kid minded, actually. Um, I mean, okay. obviously, it's still like scary kid story, but yeah. Uh, so my thing that about um, Ocean at the End of the Lane is I I used to see complaints about it from adults, but they are, were all complaining online about how short it was. Because mm-hmm. like when I bought it, I bought it like at the airport. So like I picked it up and I held it in my hands. So I was like, oh, this is pretty short. But people were complaining online about how much they had paid for a short book. But that makes sense if it's kind of supposed to be more young adult. I can't imagine complaining about a book's length, like as if you're like on a subscription service or something. People do. So you're not getting as many words as you usually pay for that month. That's capitalism, bro. 
That's just it's broken everybody's fucking brains. It's I remember true. people complaining about the Venom sequel being like 90 minutes and not three hours oh, uh, last year. Oh, my God. Because <laughs> superhero movies are supposed to be three hours, hours now. now. Yeah. Oh, my God. The only thing that's supposed to be that long is Dr. Doolittle with Rex Anderson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Coraline is definitely four children. I think that Ocean at the End of the Lane is like an adult version of that same sort of story, except that it's a little bit more of an intrusion rather than... The yeah. sort of fairy tale thing on the other side of the door. I loved it. I loved it. I wish I had had something like this when I was a kid. It very much falls into, well, not something like this, this specific one, because it falls into we what we had talked about before. Terrifying which was the, things, but. Yes. <laughs> like th- children's media of the 80s and 90s that was pretty scary, like Return to Oz and Secret of Nim and Never Ending Story at points, you know, things that weren't afraid to scare children. I'm glad that this exists even though now it's like 13 years old. So even the people who saw this as kids are now, you know, struggling to find jobs in this horrible economy. But I'll also say real quick before I discuss my final film, that since we last met, I read uh, both Lindsay Ellis's first novel, Axiom's End, uh, which I thought was fine. I thought it was a very (laughs) good piece of like pop fiction. I like her a lot. I think that if you like her, then you'll like it. And I think that it was a lot of fun, although there were moments where I was like, ooh, you know, it's not sense and sensibility. It's not infinite jest, but it's not trying to be either. It's just, it's a fun little story that, you know, is about kind of an alien invasion and like has like a rival vibes. It's fun. And I also read... Lev Grossman's first Magician's novel because I watched the Magician's television series a few years back and then I have rewatched it like three times since then. I think it's the most recent television show that I has like extreme rewatchability to me personally. So much so that I actually last year at the end of the year bought all three of the books that the TV show was based on and just finished reading the first one and it was uh interesting departure or i guess different in fascinating ways from the show the show i think still was um a superior adaptation of the original work personally i think that the expansiveness of the tv show as well as maybe having a more um diverse and wider set of creators involved might have given the show the depth that the novel failed to have yeah you like a full writer's room instead of just one person yeah Although it did confirm my suspicions, at least as far as I'm concerned, that you were never supposed to like the main character, um, <laughs> that that he's kind of horrible and he's he is worse in the book. And I never really thought because this happens. It's the Draco and leather pants thing, right? Where it's like it doesn't really matter what the intention of the creator is. Sometimes if you just got an actor who's good looking, it doesn't really matter. People are going to treat them great and act like the character is great, even if they're like the whiniest piece of shit. And that was always the case for Quentin Coldwater. He was the worst character on the show always. And I have often discussed with other people who watch the show whether or not they thought that was intentional. But now that I've read the book, I can say for sure it's got to be. But yeah, I my last movie that I saw and I this is a hard sell okay Uh, it has very strange john watersy 
sort of polyester vibes. I'm listening. Yeah, I was say. It's a movie called <laughs> Pumpkin from 2002. Oh, I want to see this with Christina Ricci. With Christina Ricci. It's so funny. So Christina Ricci is sort of a very vapid sorority girl who uh, her sorority in an attempt to be like the uh, sorority of the year or what have you. They're volunteering that they do that year is that they're going to help some sort of adults participate in the legally distinct from special Olympics. And she falls in love with the guy that she's supposed to be training. And he sort of falls in love with her too. And they have this love that no one else believes in. And if it ever for a moment blinked, it would be a very different movie with a very different vibe. Imagine pitching that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The creators, I don't, I haven't seen anything else that they have made and they have not made many things. It's like a writer director duo. And the, one of the movies that they made somewhat recently, like within the past 15 years, I've never heard of. And the movie that they made prior to pumpkin, I actually remember, I think it was like a made for TV movie called dead man on campus. And I specifically remember it coming on USA in the late 90s. Uh, it was about like a group on campus trying to fake the death of like one of their classmates in order to get straight A's, which is also like a darkly comic premise. So I assume that this is just their bread and butter. But like when I'm trying to recount in the days since to other people like what was funny about the movie and like explain any of the jokes they sound horrible like it sounds not <laughs> funny it sounds like it doesn't it sounds like i'm being in very poor taste and the movie kind of is in poor taste but it's also the funniest fucking thing i've ever seen we could not <laughs> stop laughing you know there's like a really great scene where Christina Ricci has been kicked out of school because of her romance with Pumpkin, which is the name of her um, assignee. And she like decides that to just swallow everything that's in the medicine cabinet in this like big sort of uh, fish paw uh, show of exaggeration where she just like tries to take everything that's in the medicine cabinet, including like Pepto-Bismol and just like squirting contact solution in her mouth. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny and i kind of balked whenever it was suggested in our friend group because it's 118 minutes it's almost two hours long Whoa. and you think that's that's really long for a comedy for a comedy yeah. for a yeah. comedy you don't think that it's sustainable and it is somehow it manages to be it's the funniest fucking thing it's so good. I can't recommend it enough, but I can't also can't like quote any of the jokes to you because out of context, they don't out of the context of this movie, they do not work. So it's like a tonal thing. It's 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 all about the tone, and I cannot recommend it more highly, Pumpkin. I might even like suggest that for a future movie of the month or make everybody watch it for this podcast because I can't wait to watch this again. I can't wait. I loved it. Um but yeah. That's that's what I've been watching. Allie, Allie, what about you? Oh my gosh, I have been watching a whole lot of movies. So the first one that I have watched in the last couple of weeks was The House. 
and yeah. I loved it. Very, very into it. I mean, I knew I would. More stop motion. Stop motion animation, I'm already like a sucker for. And then for it to be a bunch of weird, like little semi-connected stories, oh, just so good. That first one, oh man, it was so like grim fairy tale. And I love that because, I mean, Brandon knows based on our mutual love of Tale of Tales that uh, I love like dark fairy tale type stuff. Oh, like the traditional fairy tale style. Yeah, very, very into it. Now that I'm thinking about it, it does have something to do with Coraline as well, because I know the most horrifying thing about Coraline is the button eyes. Oh my God, yes. And then the first segment of the house has that whole like furniture arc Uh uh, where people are turned into like fabric and things. I mean, that first segment, I like all of like all of the segments are amazing and wonderful. But that first segment, I think, was my favorite. Just yeah, how all of the like all of the elements that were animated is just all fiber arts, like yeah. all of it. Like everything was knit or like pieces of fiber fill. Like all of the fire and just everything. Yes, I was like, it was so oh, good. I love this. Those um, directors who made that, uh, their first movie, um, This Magnificent Cake, is about 40, 50 minutes long, and it's about the Belgian Congo. Huh. It's also animated in that exact same style, um, and it's also like interconnected stories. So I don't know. I, I, I thought that was very good as well. Um, it's very politically pointed. Sounds a little depressing, but I do love that animation style. So, But yeah, stop motion, I'm such a sucker for. So I loved it. Um, the next thing I watched was not as great, but it was also 100% in my wheelhouse. So I, this is what I kind of did these past couple weeks is I watched like whatever seemed like it was in my niche set of interests. So this one is stuffed. It's just this documentary about taxidermy, taxidermists, like what they do and why and like their view of it. And you know, these people are from all walks of life and I kind of also love taxidermy. So, you know, I'm just like the creepiest person here right now. I'm like, give me all the dark fairy tales and the taxidermy. I'm gonna watch Schwankmeyer's <laughs> Alice for the umpteenth time. Um, yeah, it was a lot of that. Um, people from all over the world but like it connected ultimately in this like quote-unquote like contest which basically is just like a conference that they have and they all like get together and hang out basically so it was like really good to watch a bunch of taxidermists like talk about dead stuff and how they got into it and what people's responses are i feel like there were even more documentaries like that after christopher guest made a couple mockumentaries yeah where it's just like this like niche communities um, you follow a few weirdos and they're like little tiny orbits in their town yeah. and then all the weirdos meet in like a big convention center in the middle of like Kentucky or something. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I feel like Christopher Guest almost like solidified that format and there's just been like countless ones like it since then. Because in like Gates of Heaven. Oh yeah, uh, Gates you know, of they Heaven. Don't they up. don't meet up at all. Right? Well, so I think the thing about Gates of Heaven is it's more like they are competing and have different viewpoints. But they never meet up, no. Yeah, there's more of a backstory. Yeah. Oh, I love that movie too. Death and dying and <laughs> creepy stop motion. The good stuff. Good stuff. Uh, so the next thing that was 100% my shit that I watched, uh, 
Criterion Channel now has the Douglas Sirk Melodrama collection, in case y'all wanted to know that. So I kind of worked through that over the past week or so. Um, the first one I watched was a first-time watch, actually, a Magnificent Obsession. I don't remember loving that one, to be honest. I did not love it, but it still was exactly what I was feeling at that moment. I'm like, I still, this is exactly still what I want to watch. I mean, not everything can be all that heaven allows. Wasn't that one like super religious? I think that's what bummed me out about it. Yeah, it did get weirdly religious. I don't know. It's just like in this like very like, just of that time period being like, Jesus Christ lived his life like this and he was great. And then died. <laughs> that did um bother me a little bit. I think the other thing is just like it was one of the first like starring roles that Rock Hudson had, and it's just weird to me that he was never like a star from the beginning. But I guess everybody's gonna start somewhere because he's just like has that magnetism and that power like every time he's on screen. But the thing that I really noticed about this movie and All That Heaven Allows. And I mean, they're both Rock Hudson and Jane Wyman. And the thing I really liked about them is both of them are about an older widow falling for a younger man. And it's so, it's done in like such a sweet way. And we don't have movies like that done in a sweet way. It's always like, I don't know, it always feels very creepy and like predatory when we have like so like age disparate, like male female roles like where the guy is much much older there's this um erotic thriller that i've been wanting to watch lately um i think it's on amazon prime now but julia binoche plays like this you know lonely woman who like catfishes like a 20 year old man oh my god and i'm like julia binoche would not need to catfish anyone not at all she's perfectly beautiful and sexy as is not at all (laughs) in fact if you were to catfish someone you would just pose as julia binoche (laughs) uh yeah so it's never shown like as a as a sweet sort of nice thing i mean i don't watch a whole lot of like modern rom-coms at all but yeah to my knowledge you know we don't have anything like these movies anymore at all and it makes me sad because I just have to rewatch them. Yeah, Cece and I watched all of his Technicolor ones for the podcast one time. Yeah. So we did like All That Heaven Allows, Magnificent Obsession, Written, Written on, on the, the Wind. wind. I was going to say, that was the other one I watched was Written on the Wind. Oh, it's so good. It is really great. It's so, so dramatic. I love it. That's a drunk movie. It is. <laughs> Those characters are steeped in alcohol. Oh, 100%, like all of the time. I mean, my favorite is All That Heaven Allows because it's very sweet. That's my, my favorite And as well. I'm a sap. There's a shot in that teenager's bedroom through the stained glass windows yes. that is like every color that the eye can register and it is the most beautiful thing. Oh my God, it's I so know. so simple. That movie's so gorgeous. And once again, so sweet. I'm a sap just from the beginning. Like I've talked to y'all about how I've done like nothing in the last year but read a whole bunch of romance novels and I'm just keeping on and it's a wonder I don't watch a lot of like modern rom-coms but they just don't hit me they don't hit me in the same space I've watched them with my mom and I've been like I I don't like this this isn't that good it doesn't feel like they're as um sincere most of the time like 
I think that's the thing about, you know, these movies is they're very, like, as dramatic and just over the top as they are, they're still very sincere and they still have this, like, warm, like, heart to them that, I don't know, you don't see in a lot of, like, modern romantic movies, at least major ones. Yeah, I have some favorites, but they're more like festival type movies. Exactly, yeah. I mean, I really liked Obvious Child Mm -hmm. and... Yeah, that was a good one. Sleeping with other people, but... As far as the mainstream, like Hollywood ones, like I know they have that Marry Me movie with J Lo out right yeah, now. Yeah, they do. I've been. There's not many that are unfortunately make, like, curious me, you know? about that, even though I know I'm gonna hate it. <laughs> Apparently, it's based off a web comic. I do love romantic <laughs> web comics, though. So <laughs> it just fits in right with my lack of taste on anything else. Um, I also watched this one. Big recommendation for this one. I watched a lot of documentaries, um, apparently, but this one was incredible. It's called Araya. It's about this um, Venezuelan, or was it Venezuelan? It's like a salt marsh in the Araya Venezuelan Peninsula. And okay. it's gorgeous. It shows like the daily like life of the workers and like obviously the you're toiling all day in the salt marsh and like it looks awful but this is like how these people have made their living for years and years and years and the cinematography and just everything it's so beautiful just like shots up these sand dunes and you know it's in black and white and it's just I don't know it's so stark I don't know if either of you have seen like Woman in the Dunes no but- no uh-uh it's the only movie I could think of that was like sort of similar. That one's a fictional movie, not a documentary. Um, so yeah, this one was like amazing. Is this a newer film or is this also as old as Woman in the Dunes? It's as old as Woman in the Dunes. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, it was gorgeous and amazing. And the narration, it's in Spanish, uh, but the narration just feels very like poetic, but not like in a overly like, ridiculous way i just i can't recommend it enough it's like it's probably one of the best documentaries i've ever seen i'm gonna be honest i watched a couple of really ridiculous movies i watched the new shutter original movie slap face (laughs) i've not heard of that it is not great (laughs) <laughs> it, it feels very like made for tv horror movie which i guess it is since it's like a made for shutter original and it's almost like a very very dark et it's like this boy and his brother have lost both their parents and his brother's like 20 something and this boy is like 13 and they're just like having a terrible life together because the older brother is obviously like awful at taking care of a younger kid and so this younger kid befriends like this evil witch and yeah it's it's just ridiculous um watched it with some of my friends over video chat and we were just like it was a fun movie to get together with friends to just kind of rib on the whole time but i can't recommend it i watched the uh new documentary about full core uh woodlands dark and days bewitched and it's three hours long yeah i wanted to squeeze that in for our like best of the year stuff and i was just like 
I could watch two 2021 movies in the span that it would take me to watch this one documentary. Yeah. It is just not going to happen. <laughs> and I put it off. Yeah. If you're like me, um, once again, this is another me 100% watching something that's like my shit. If you're like me and you just like really want to hear a bunch of film historians and like theorists talk about movies for three hours, it is amazing. Because it's so informative and it's so in-depth, as it should be for three hours. And I still came away being like, oh man, but I want to hear more about folk horror from around the world. Because it is very, like, uh, like England-centric. I mean, I know that's where like the term folk horror was all written about and stuff. And all the, the greats, quote-unquote, come from there. And it does touch on, like, things from the rest of the world, but... I'm still just like, oh man, I could take a whole class on this and I'd be 100% happy. I think originally they hired the director to do a like DVD extra for that Arrow video box set of like folk horror stuff they were going to put out. And as she was making it, she was like, I cannot make this shorter than three hours long. There are too many movies to talk about. Really? And uh, they gave her the resources to make the full movie she did and they gave it like a festival push. Wow. And then Shudder picked up like... That entire box set, or not all yeah, of it, I was but like say, most not of all the, of it, but most of it. Most of the movies that were f- featured on there did not have a physical media release, at least not a current mm-hmm. one. And now they're just sitting on that streaming service for six dollars a it month. It is pretty amazing. Amazing. I just thought it was an interesting decision to make it just a three-hour chunk instead of like breaking it up into a miniseries type, you know, feature, because it's already broken up into chapters. And, you know, with the exception of people who are like me, I don't see people sitting down for three hours for, like, a lecture about folk horror. That was just to tie into the other kind of not great movie I watched that was on Shudder. Because I was going through this collection just being like, oh, what do I want to watch now? And I watched this movie, Allison's Birthday, which... <laughs> I thought would be great because it's about a girl and her friends and they talk to this Ouija board and the Ouija board's like, don't go home on your 19th birthday. You don't know what's going to happen. But really, it's not great. It's not a good movie. It's almost so bad it's good, but I don't think it ever really reaches that level. And yeah, I don't recommend it, uh, really. Like, obviously... You know, if you want to go through and be a completionist with that whole collection, do it. But other than that... I do feel like um, it's kind of a beautiful thing that those movies that weren't great <laughs> are getting swept up in this, like, push to, like, give every genre relic, like, this, like, 4K Blu-ray restoration. Yeah. <laughs> so you can watch these, like, really beautiful scans of Allison's birthday. Yes. <laughs> that were otherwise, like... Probably only seen on like VHS tapes exactly. by the like twelve people who've seen it in the past. The only way people had it before was if they like pressed record on their VHS when it was on TV. Right. Yeah. And I do appreciate that. I just like with all of the remakes happening these days, I just wish movies like this were the ones getting the treatment. Like things that could be improved upon rather than just nostalgia fodder, you know? It, like, makes me sad. Like, this could have major, like, craft vibes. But instead, it's just kind of, yeah. And I watched Chud for the first time. 
A movie that should be better than it is. But I thought it was actually pretty good. Really? Yeah. <laughs> not enough chuds in Chud. There's my, not my enough complaint. chuds. But the chuds that there are, pretty good. Oh, I love looking at the chud. Yeah, the chud is amazing. Also, there is like a conversation in it that I uh, really appreciated where like the main female character is like, I'm pregnant. And then they have like a whole conversation about whether or not she should keep the baby. And the dude's like, well, it's your choice. And I was like, what? <laughs> For an this, 80s like, movie? Yeah. yeah. This schlocky 80s horror is being very pro-choice suddenly. Oh, man. It's also kind of like a pro-homeless people rights movie, yes! right? Like, yes. It's got a kind of a political bent in that way. Yeah. I did not expect the politics of uh, this 80s horror about mutated <laughs> cannibal humans. <laughs> To be uh, on the right side of politics, which was nice. Uh, When we watched it um, for the podcast, we watched it with us and Parasite because we're doing Uh, this like vertical class warfare. We're like rich people literally on top top and poor people literally on the bottom. bottom. Oh, that's (laughs) such a good pairing. Oh, my gosh. Because I think us sights Chud a couple times visually, like maybe. Yeah, it sure does. Uh huh. Yeah. Also, in the folk horror collection, I watched this very charming Norwegian movie called Lake of the Dead. It's more of like a mystery than a horror, but, you know, it's from 1958. So, you know, it's not like horror at that point wasn't like spooky scary. It was more eerie, which I'm into. I'm not complaining. Just like don't go into it expecting like scare the pants off of you. It's sort of just about a bunch of, like, middle-aged Norwegian people in a remote cabin trying to figure out this mystery of where their friend went, which is pretty good. And like you were saying about how all of these movies that didn't have, like, wide releases before getting, like, these beautiful restorations, like, it really just, in this movie, you could tell, like, it looked great for just such a small like weird little novelty type thing. Probably better than it's ever looked before. Yeah, exactly. I really appreciated that. I mean, every now and then you'll get something like The Visitor or something where it's like, I'm glad you went back and cleaned this up because it is actually insane. Yes. It's just funny how many like kind of boring uh, schlock, you know, runoffs get mixed yeah. up in there. For every Lake of the Dead or The Visitor, you got an Allison's birthday in there. Exactly. Um, What have you been watching now that... I've rambled on and on and on. Should I do that as well? I could I could cut it off at just two titles or I could go off for a minute. <laughs> I say go off. That's my vote. I should embrace the format of the show for what it is, I guess. Yeah. I don't uh, know. It's very front loaded. What do you say, Boomer? Should we go off? Here, here. Motion carries. <laughs> <laughs> I had a library apocalypse problem a couple weeks oh, back. Oh, yeah. We uh, sympathized with each other over this because I also got five books in at the library at once. So I got seven DVDs and one trip to the library. And then there were like two more that came in like a few days later. Oh, my it was God. way too much. Um, and I won't go through all of them. But between that and catching up with Oscar movies and watching new releases that have been coming out on streaming, I've been watching a lot of stuff. I will try to keep it to just sort of newer releases. Um, I saw the new Edgar Wright movie Last Night in Soho, which came out in theaters last October. And I think I'm done with Edgar Wright for a while. 
Uh, I, I did not like Baby Driver, and I thought this was worse. Like the first hour of it, I was like, this is cute, but kind of boring. And then by the end, I was like big mad at it. I was like actually like infuriated by the film. Um, but on paper, it sounds so cool. It's like Thomas and McKenzie plays this fashion student um, who moves from like the country to London. And she's obsessed with the 1960s. And she also has these... uh powers as a spiritual medium where she can like see <laughs> ghosts and like things from the past yeah that sounds like it would be great so you have this like kind of almost like suspiria style setting where she's at this like fashion school the other girls are like really mean to her and every man in london um, is really gross like hitting on her all the time and at night she goes to bed and she dreams of the 1960s uh she is kind of living this swinging 60s fantasy in the skin of Anya Taylor-Joy playing this like wannabe kind of nightclub singer back then and just looking absolutely gorgeous modeling all of these 1960s like clothes like those like baby doll dresses that cut oh, off right at the cooch so good <laughs> like yeah I love and those. uh those bright colors and those like ridiculous bangs um everything looks great and then uh sort of the moral of the story is like the past isn't as cool as you think it is it was actually really gross uh and um, Anya Taylor-Joy's backstory that she's reliving devolves into this uh, forced prostitution narrative. Oh, and then weird. all of the Johns that she mm. has like start leaking into the present as ghosts. And the politics of the movie just get worse and worse as it tries to do this sort of like girl boss fixing of the past. Like it's it's kind of doing this like Me Too narrative, but like by fixing what happened and like like violently confronting the like trauma that Anya Taylor Joy lived through, it becomes this like just really infuriating mess by the end. Like I was like actually like mad at the movie and I don't get like really aggravated by like the politics of something like that often. So anyway, it, it's just bad. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know <laughs> if I've just outgrown him or if he only is good when he works with Simon Pegg, but like recently I've just like no interest in whatever he's working on. And I think I'm going to skip out on the next one. Um, I also got, um, I'm going in order of how much I liked these, so I promise I won't be sour about all of these, but uh, I, I got um, Venom, Let There Be Carnage in through the library. I really liked the first Venom. I thought it was fun to watch Tom Hardy turn a very boring, by-the-numbers superhero origin story into like a Nick Cageian freak show. Like By the <laughs> end of that movie, he's doing like Nick Cage in vampire's kiss level just like <laughs> mugging and like manic comic energy and everything around him is so bland so he's like by his own hands morphing that movie into something fun and interesting um and let there be carnage there's kind of this tommy was so effect where like the movie now knows that it's funny so it's not funny at all oh yeah and instead of um his like non-venom character his uh his like human alias eddie brock Instead of him rolling around in the lobster tank, freaking out Nick Cage style, you mostly just get him doing the Venom voice, bunch of one-liners, kind of providing as-you-go mystery science theater, like sarcastic commentary on like all the other humans in the story. And it's just not funny or cute or anything. Um, I thought it was pretty dire. Sounds like it got like Deadpooled. Oh, I called it. Um, Low effort goth Deadpool in my <laughs> review oh my that God. I wrote, which will be going up this week. I'm <laughs> so also glad on. to be around and talking to folks who 
didn't like Deadpool as well because that was like that whole fad was making me feel insane. Like, did we watch the same movie world? <laughs> Brandon, I thought I remembered you having moderate to positive feelings about that one. No, I actually reviewed both Deadpool movies and did not enjoy myself. Oh. I think I wrote about the like specifically the weird experience of sitting in a theater where every single person is laughing and you're just kind of like looking around. <laughs> Because <laughs> I just didn't know what to do with myself. I thought the first one was was fine, and then I fell asleep in the second one in the theater. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, okay, Al, you're right. You're you're in you're in the right territory. <laughs> I know that I like to be cynical about superhero movies, but oof, that was not good. I also got a movie that probably will be on Shutter eventually. They bought it out of festivals last year, and they did a theatrical run. And it just still isn't on their platform yet, but it's on DVD now, and I got it through the New Orleans Public Library. It's called Spine of Night. It is a rotoscope animation. Ooh. Ooh. It is recalling stuff like Wizards or Heavy Metal or Gondahar. Those like, you know, 70s Dungeons and Dragons style fantasy epics. It's okay. I thought I would like it more. Lucy Lawless voices this like, Uh, naked swamp witch as like the main character (laughs) and uh she has to like unite all these different kingdoms to like overthrow these like uh, magic wizards i'm about to watch this and love it (laughs) it sounds really cool and i will say that the um like from scene to scene there are a lot of like really cool like just images lots of like just boobs and swords and beheadings uh, and disembowelings and <laughs> swamp magic and I was gonna say you're selling this. That's the cool part, but like I don't think the story's particularly great. And honestly, I don't usually love rotoscope animation that much. So maybe that's on me. Boo. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. I love I love how you know the whole time Allie's like yeah yeah and you're like Brandon Brandon you're like yes but no yes no, but no Allie <laughs> no. <laughs> Uh, it's okay. I am totally fine with um, people being like, Allie, why are you like a 16-year-old in the 80s? A 16-year-old boy in the 80s wanting <laughs> to watch heavy metal and wizards. If you like heavy metal, that's about the level this is on. I, I don't like heavy metal personally. Yeah, nor I, but I, I don't like I, it as much I, as I support wizards. you. I like wizards. And Wizards uses the rotoscope sparingly. Like it uses yeah. rotoscope sometimes. Uh, this is like... Once your eye kind of adjusts to the visual style, it's never going to surprise you, you know? Um, it, it'll just continue to look cool the same way the whole time. Yeah. I, th- I thought it was fine overall. I, I think the superior animated fantasy epic from last year is definitely Crypto, crypto Zoo. Zoo. Like, without a question. <laughs> so that, that one still reigns supreme. It's a very small niche of 2021 animated fantasy epics with like psychedelic overtones. Well, but hopefully yeah, the better movie. there's going to be more. Hopefully this is like a trend that's just like starting up. I will keep watching them. <laughs> <laughs> Whether or not I love them, I'll keep watching them. Send them to Tubi. We will watch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I watched the new Jean-Pierre Jeunet movie that just popped on, on Netflix this weekend. It's called Big Bug. I don't know if I liked this or not. I'm on the like fence about it. I like the Flaming Lips song. There are no Flaming Lips needle drops in this. There are no big bugs in this either, um, despite what you might expect. Uh, It's set in the future, 
Uh, there's like three couples who get stuck in a house during a artificial intelligence revolt where like these like very fascistic muscle men robots uh, decide that they're going to exterminate all humans. So they pretty much lock everyone in their automated houses um, and you just have to sort of wait for the uh, AI soldiers to arrive. Um, they're also locked in their house with this sort of like outdated version of the same AI tech. So like these robots that are just maids and, you know, vacuums and things that have a personality, but are just like household appliances and not their own, you know, autonomous beings. Um, and the humans are trying to find privacy in this home to have sex to pass the time. So it's kind of like a sex romp. And the robots <laughs> are trying to learn how to be human because they admire the human beings and not the AI revolutionists. I don't know what to make of this, to be honest. Like It sounds very him. That's true. Like all the like characters are trying to like outquirk each other <laughs> in the same way that like Janae movies always are. But like if you think about all of his movies, like all the way back to like Delicatessen, they all have the same dusty, lived in grime feel to them. Mm-hmm. And this is a movie he made for Netflix, and all of a sudden it looks like Spy Kids or something. It's like so clean and CG and colorful and sugary that it almost feels like he's making some kind of joke about Netflix movies. Like, it's so intensely artificial. It reminded me most of like Cat in the Hat, the live action one with uh, Mike Myers. <laughs> and oh sometimes my that feels satirical. Like, sometimes it feels like he's doing exterminating angel on the set of cat in the hat. And sometimes it just feels like deleted scenes from cat in the hat. So it <laughs> kind of like alternates between like being kind of interesting and intensely awful. And I don't know what to make of that balance. I don't know if I recommend it. I don't know if I'll ever think about it again, but I did watch it <laughs> and uh, it's sitting there. The last two I did really like. Uh, I watched uh, the Slumber Party Massacre remake that they did for the Sci-Fi Channel last year. It's actually very smart and fun. It's from the same woman huh. who did the Banana Splits movie on Sci-Fi Channel a couple years ago, which was kind of like a precursor to Willy's Wonderland. Right. Uh, these like killer animatronic versions of the Banana Splits. In this case, it, it starts off like there's a cold open that's kind of the original Slumber Party Massacre. It's like teen girls in their pajamas having a pizza party and giggling and then the driller killer comes in with this big phallic weapon and like kills them all except for one the final girl gets away that's like the first few minutes and you're like this is just a boring version of a better movie from 30 years ago and then it cuts to modern day and these like girls are doing the same ritual they're like they have car troubles on their way to the same cabin they're giggling over pizza in their pajamas and then as the driller killer's on his way to get them, you realize that they're actually doing all this on purpose as like a proactive way to bait the killer so that they can kill him instead. And then nearby, there's a cabin of hunky boys who are having a genuine sleepover party uh, with their abs out doing like pillow fights <laughs> and like throwing out. And the girls go spy on them in that like voyeuristic way that like boys would have like looked in on pajama parties in the original Slumber Party Massacre trilogy. And 
I don't know. I could not catch up with the new Scream because I have not seen most of those sequels, but I have seen every Slumber Party Massacre movie, so I felt equipped to watch this meta commentary on slasher tropes, and I actually found it very fun. It's very goofy, but also has a lot of like pretty like um, pointed commentary about like voyeurism and slut shaming and kind of largely like true crime podcast brain rot like how everybody is just obsessed with serial killers now because of true crime podcasts and like how that can get you in deep shit (laughs) if you're not like careful (laughs) about like dissociating from reality as you focus on that stuff so i don't know the driller killer is actually still creepy but all the like satirical stuff that was sort of sanded down in the roger corman treatment of the original slumber party massacre is actually like brought to the forefront here. Like the producers and the director and the writer all know that they're making the same movie, which is, you know, a better go around than the first one. Um, Slumber Party Massacre 2 is still the masterpiece of the uh, the franchise, but I really liked the new one. Roger Corman, who I was surprised to learn is still alive. Yep. Yeah. Was yeah, shocked by that. I was surprised that. with that too, actually. Not still to get ahead of ourselves. Too. Yeah, right? I was, anyway, sorry. Not to get too far ahead of us. I was going to say, I was already going to get too far ahead with Janae and being like, oh, yeah, like... <laughs> True. <laughs> the fourth alien. One more before we get into Alien. I know. I'm so sorry I that I prolonged this. I could have just done two and gotten out. But uh, <laughs> the new Soderbergh dropped on HBO Max this weekend. It's called Kimmy, and I loved it. It is Zoe Kravitz playing a tech surveillance person. Um, remember that job that the guy has in possessor where he's like spying yeah. on people through their like amazon bullshit mm-hmm. she's doing the same thing but it's more like uh there's a new technology that's like alexa that's like listening whenever people give alexa commands um the thing is called kimmy instead of alexa and um it is having trouble with like colloquial terms so like if someone calls something a doohickey instead of a paper towel and alexa doesn't understand the command she goes through and like corrects the user input so that uh, the technology gets smarter. By reviewing these clips, she discovers evidence of a murder and then tries to bring that to corporate's attention and it gets her in hot water where she is going to be killed because she's about to blow up this like uh, product launch for this Kimmy technology. Uh, she is an agoraphobe whose anxiety about being outside has been made worse by the COVID-19 pandemic. And like the first 20 minutes... You feel like, oh, this is Soderbergh doing Rear Window, um, but like COVID era. So like she's on her computer a lot and interacting with the um, apartment across the street. There's like a couple people that she has like uh, a visual rapport with where they like do a lot of physical communication from across the street uh, in their in their little windows and their little COVID bubbles. And then once she has to leave her apartment or she's going to get murdered, it instead turns into Soderbergh redoing the net uh, with Sandra Bullock. Yeah, it sounds more like the net to me. Yep. And he's yeah. doing the net, but with the same visual style that he made Unsane. And that combination is so good. <laughs> it is really fun. All the same ugly office settings that like hideous digital camera work. That's like all uncomfortably up close and like, 
that feeling of just like being chased and like panicking every second and not knowing what to do with yourself as all these like surveillance cameras are like picking her up across the city. It is just a really great throwback to those like 90s thrillers. Um, but you know, Soderbergh loves playing with camera equipment and experimenting with like visual style. Uh, yeah. And this movie just looks and feels awesome the whole time. I'm a big fan. I've never been afraid of anything that wasn't human, you know, and and the alien is something you, you well, my my character doesn't know what it is even, not I don't know enough about it to know how to be afraid of it, you know, I don't know really how it works or what motivates it, I can't make any assumptions about it, so it's really the terror of the unknown that to me was the the way I plugged into it. About a year ago, uh, Cece and I watched Raised by Wolves, the first season of that show that's on HBO Max. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it reminded me a lot of Prometheus, which is a movie I really like. And because of that connection, Cece and I actually ended up watching all of the Alien movies. A box set I owned before I had a Blu-ray player. I, I think I found it cheap somewhere and was like, one day I will have something to play this on. It just sat... <laughs> On my shelf until uh, this Raised by Wolves like thing came up. And then I feel like since then, there's just so much alien stuff like out in the ether that it's just like constantly on my mind that that franchise. Like I know Neil Blomkamp wants to like reboot the series and like Ridley Scott wants to wrap up as like Prometheus and Covenant trilogy. I think there is a new TV show from Noah Hawley coming out. Raised by Wolves season two just came out. There's a new documentary called Alien on Stage that's about like a high school musical production um, of Alien. Oh, yeah. The, oh, the right. pictures yeah. from that were amazing. And then, you know, Disney bought Fox. So Disney has the Alien rights and just the like stress about whether or not they'll ever loan that movie out again for like public display is like making it part of the conversation as well because Disney's really bad about repertory screenings. They just like don't bother with them Mm -hmm. because it's not a big money-making endeavor and they just don't care. (laughs) So like Alien's been on my mind because of that. And then late last year, I guess because I had rewatched all this stuff, I also watched Life Force, uh, which was Dan O'Bannon's film where he sort of redid all the stuff he wrote in Alien, but like way pulpier. And we did that as a movie of the month. So I thought about Alien a lot, just all throughout 2021. I wanted some way to talk about it on the podcast. What I ended up settling on was this documentary from 2019 called Memory, The Origins of Alien. It got a pretty short run at some film festivals. I believe it premiered at Sundance to generally favorable reviews. I I feel like the big complaint about it is that it, feels like a DVD extra, kind of like what we were saying about Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched. Yeah. But, you know, I have that box set of Alien movies. There's no way in hell I'm ever sitting down and watching all of the DVD extras and, like, commentaries and things that are on those. Like, I'll just (laughs) never make the time to do that. It's not going to happen. So, like, 
this 80 minute overview is pretty good to have just concise and it actually has like a point of view the same director made that documentary about psycho a few years ago that was like just about the shower stabbing scene and in this one he instead of talking about the entire production of the film he mostly wants to focus on the um, cultural, philosophical, literary influences on Alien. Um, and it's like creation as a script by Dan O'Bannon. So this validated a lot of things I was already thinking. Like, I did not realize how strong of a creative force Dan O'Bannon was until last year. I think I watched Life Force, and oh, he also yeah, directed yeah. Um, Return of the Living Dead within the same couple weeks. We should say he did not direct Life Force. Toby Hooper directed Life Toby Force. Toby Hooper did. What am I talking yeah, about? Yeah, he I'm wrote sorry. it, but... He directed Return of the Living Dead, which I watched around the same time. Yes. So I, got, yeah. I got that detail mixed up. Yep. So he, he wrote Life Force, though, and the same preoccupations that he had in Alien were, like, so heavily present in Life Force that, like, I had to, like, rethink about Alien. <laughs> like, you know, the previously I had seen Dark Star which he wrote with um, John Carpenter um, as like a film school project. And it's not a very good movie. It's like very hack comedy um, and also feels a lot like Alien, but it just doesn't work. Um, and watching him do the same thing again in Life Force and just make it more like B-movies from the 50s, that's where I feel like this documentary really validated how I was thinking about it. Like my favorite thing about Alien and its sequels, its better sequels, is that it feels like the 1950s Roger Corman creature feature sort of redone in these like terrifying, legitimately scary ways. It, it just sucks all the corniness out of the B-picture influences that are on Alien and sort of brings out the nightmare shit yeah. <laughs> uh, at the center of it. And um, all of the movies I watched around the time of Life Force... I watched It, The Terror from Beyond Space. I watched Queen of Blood. Um, one of the movies I pitched for us doing like an Alien episode was going to be Planet of the Vampires. Right. All of those movies are covered in this film. They go through like the history of like B-pictures that influenced the creation of Alien. And then like Dan O'Bannon as a creative force bringing in collaborators like Ridley Scott and H.R. Giger to realize the like scariest version of that B picture archetype. Yeah. That's what I'm fixated on. Obviously this movie talks about other stuff. Uh, they talk a lot about like Greek myth and like EC comics and like all these other influences, but that was kind of the direction I was coming from. Did memory add anything to how you think about alien or did it reinforce anything you were already thinking? Like how, how did this work as a documentary about a movie that's already so solid in the like public consciousness? The thing that it did for me, especially because these days he's kind of just like an old man who says old man stuff, I gave me a new appreciation for Ridley Scott because yeah. I didn't realize, like, first off, his hand-drawn storyboards were amazing. And second off, it feels like he very much kind of took this script by Dan O'Bannon, who by all accounts, kind of seems like he was an edgelord <laughs> and really made it into something great. Like, I think that's the thing that, you know, sticks with me the most is like, yeah, it focused it like and zeroed in on O'Bannon, but it really also emphasized that this movie 
is so great because there were so many good minds working on it. Yeah. He definitely has a visual eye that um, the movie would not work without. And honestly, he has become preoccupied with this story. Like, Agreed. In general, Ridley Scott is kind of like a workman director. Where like you can't really tell what Thelma and Louise has to do with like the gladiator or anything yeah. like that. Like he he just like is a professional and does like grand Hollywood productions that don't necessarily connect with each other. But I think with like Prometheus and Covenant and everything else he's done in the alien world, like obviously he's also thematically preoccupied with this stuff and can't get past it. Yeah, there's a point in the movie where they talk about how the there's a chestburster scene in, scene in Alien Covenant. Like, that's something that they actually talk about as I mean, hap- they pretty much covered everything that I did not like about Covenant in that one little snippet. <laughs> uh, Covenant is not at the bottom of my list, but I will say that... It's not at the bottom, but it's, it's near the there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. It's It's in the top half of mine. Does that mean that you don't like most Alien movies? No. It doesn't. Okay. It's okay. sort of how, like, I, I would say that, uh, I think we were talking about this the other day, I, I thought that Scream 5 was the f- was the second worst, but it's the fourth best, right? It's like, a, it's like <laughs> if you discount Scream 3, it's the worst one, but there's a huge, like, discrepancy in quality between Scream 5 and Scream 3. Like, it's still, it's it's in the bottom half, but it's still good. I think just generally, like, there aren't many alien movies I flat out don't like like i think it has one of the better batting yeah. averages of most horror franchises that have run this long yeah there's exactly one i dislike so i oh. i agree i would say that there's yeah i also would actually say there's one <laughs> that i dislike actively okay what's the one everyone dislikes because i have one too <laughs> alien three mm. that one's close for me prometheus mine's alien versus predator <laughs> Oh, I didn't know we were clouding Alien versus Predator. I want to get into it. Man. I even put Prometheus is at the bottom, and the one above that is Alien Prophecy, Ooh. which is a cheap-ass mockbuster that I watched on Tubi this week. Huh? I've never seen that. Yeah, yeah it's not either. good, but it's above Prometheus on this list. But I still like Alien versus Predator more than Alien 3. Really? I think Prometheus is one of the like near-perfect ones. I know. We're, <laughs> that one's been, in my top I do, three. too. I was going to say, that's my number, too. Long time. It's your number two? Yeah, it's my number two. It was my number two until I rewatched all of them last year, and I just loved the Jean-Pierre Genet Alien Resurrection too much. Yeah, I love that one too. But that one actually, you know, I think I might even like Alien Resurrection more than Aliens. <laughs> really? Uh, Aliens is kind of low on my list. Yeah, I so number one, of course, for me is Alien, because yeah, it has the most relatable scene in all a cinema history for me. She goes back to save the cat. <laughs> Despite the fact that it's a masterpiece, it also has the most relatable scene of any movie for me. <laughs> so to recap, we all have the same favorite. We all have different least favorites. All of our number ones is the classic yeah. masterpiece. I guess that's true. Amazingness. Real quick to answer your question, Brandon. I What I really liked... Okay, first of all, I want to call out this documentary for one thing. Uh, I want to give it a really big shout out, which is that any time there was a, a person talking that we had not seen in a little while, like more than five minutes, they gave them another uh, label with their name and what they did. Lower thirds. And 
I was very happy about that. That is an underrated documentary method because I, I can't say, tell you. I really appreciated that. <laughs> how many times I'm watching a documentary and because I'm going to be honest, because so much of like what we have chosen or what has become the canon because of access, because of education, because of like whatever the artistic uh, equivalent of redlining is. It ends up often being a lot of old white men that it's very hard to differentiate and distinguish between. It's true. Whenever it's a documentary about, you know, almost anything, but especially about the entertainment industry or pieces of art, you know, because of all the gatekeeping. It's, you know, it's not about talent. It's purely about gatekeeping. And and that's, you know, a result of that. So the fact that like they would reintroduce who these people were and be like, oh, this person's a film scholar from this university. I was like, thank you, because I had completely forgotten who this person was. That is one thing I will give uh, Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched is it is a very diverse group of experts. So if you were if you're upset with the white menness of this one then you can go watch that one and be happy that they reached out to so many different people (laughs) that's good to know i think what i loved most about this was uh there are things that are in alien that affect your mind subconsciously specifically i was thinking about when they're talking about how there are the the ducks bobbing into the water at the beginning before everyone wakes up. Yeah, those little like um paperweight things. Yeah. Which yeah. the warden has one of those on Drinky, his desk bird. in uh Alien 3, which I I mm. partially rewatched in preparation for this. But yeah, uh there's that and then there's like sort of as the camera moves past those papers, it's almost like you the audience are exhaling and kind of like the kind of ruffle in that breeze. And they talk in the documentary about how there's no reason for that. And yet you never even think about it. Like you never even question why. Like a lot of science fiction and I'll, you know, I'll throw all the Trekkies that I know and am (laughs) under the bus and be like, you know, so many things are so concerned with technical details. And this is a movie that does not worry about that at all and not to its detriment to its like great benefit that like yeah of course there's actually no reason why those papers would be moving there's no one awake nothing none of that is happening but because it's so well made and because it it kind of almost speaks to a truth that is greater than like the actuality it gives it more realism and gives it more weight I mean, I I like what they were saying about like the sound in the background, like the ship just like being alive yeah. in its own setting. I think also the papers ruffling kind of give it that sense. Um, I just assumed it was from an air vent, so you know I can explain <laughs> it away. But I like how that ties into the like larger point of the movie, which I think if it has a thematic focus, it is on like the influences on Alien. Of just like pre-existing yeah. material, it calls that like pool of influences. Like it calls it a few things, like the cauldron of stories and like our cultural dreams and things like that. So I feel like those two things are tied. It's like you know, there's this like immense cultural psyche that we have that the thing is like playing with. Uh, you know, it's like conjuring all this stuff sort of subconsciously, 
I don't know. I just, I just find those two things like related, like the rain coming from out of nowhere in the ship. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like yeah. it doesn't, it doesn't actually have to make sense, but like it, it feels like a dreamlike thing. And mm-hmm. if you watch a lot of like alien ripoff movies, which I've seen tons over the years, I'm sure we all have. Yeah. Like they all try to yeah. do the same thing where it's like really eerie and quiet and still. And in most movies, it's boring as shit. <laughs> but, it, it, but in the original Alien, it like works really well. Like it feels like a subliminal space, and it actually is tense the entire time, even though it's quiet. There's like a lot of slow, eerie tension in it. Yeah, this documentary just did a, such a good job of like articulating just all of the things that are good, and like all of the work and artistry that went into it. Like the idea that like so much of the camera work. Ridley Scott was just walking around with his handheld camera like (laughs) and for being handheld camera like that is so smooth like even though it's still shaky it's still it looks so good and this is pre-steadicam yeah they look like tracking shots yeah exactly that's incredible and just Giger's like hand-painted backdrops for the sets is just ugh also like I'm kitschy enough to love Giger so I'm like ugh so good. I love him too. And I, I think when I was rewatching these, I kind of pinned the whole reason that Alien as a franchise works on his creature designs and stuff. Like I was mm-hmm. like, oh, this is subliminally horrifying because that like <laughs> vaginal penile creature that like just looks like sexual menace, like is yeah. triggering something deep in my brain. So I don't know, I, that, I guess that's why I was fixated so much on Dan O'Bannon in my opening spiel is like, I felt like Giger was the reason this all works really well. And I, yeah. I recognize Ridley Scott's a very essential piece of that puzzle. But like, I really feel like O'Bannon kind of tied the whole thing together and like oh, yeah. was kind of the auteur of the piece in a way that I'd never recognized until the last 10 months or whatever. I do want to go ahead and say that, and Kat put this succinctly and I'll just quote her. I think that the Greek myth element of it is um, a bit of a stretch. Oh, yeah. Like the reenactments on the ship? Yeah, the reenactments, but especially just like, oh, it's about, you know, the tying of the Furies to the Xenomorph does not read for me. I mean, it only reads once you get into something like Prometheus and Covenant, where like they're literally like trying to kill the gods, and the gods are literally trying to kill you. That is specifically why Prometheus rules is like humans yeah, traveling is. to their creators and asking, "Why do we exist? Why did you create us?" And then gods just silently smiting them for the uh, yes. inconvenience of having to talk to this like puny thing. That combined with like the. Um, throwback to the 1950s pulp movies that I was talking about earlier, Mm -hmm. like those Roger Corman space adventures um, and creature features, I feel like is very much alive in Prometheus, even though it looks very slick and new. Yeah. And I think that's what I love about my favorite three, like Resurrection, Prometheus, and Alien all feel directly tied to those old school creature features. Oh, yeah, yeah. Resurrection for sure. And like hearing that Roger Corman passed on this movie, I was like, oh, okay, well, you know. Dan O'Bannon knew what script he was selling. Uh, yeah. Corman was like so close to producing so many of like the great films <laughs> of the past like half century. Like he almost made like so much money off of the Easy Rider script. And like uh, he passed on Alien um, because he, he didn't feel like he had enough money to do it justice, which was probably true. That's accurate. But it was cool to see him here um, credited as the Pope of pop cinema 
because he cannot be the Pope of Trash. That title is taken no, by John Waters. I felt like that was a good addition to the sources of the movie. Can't have a from. schism in the trash church. I will say I was puzzled by some of the choices of interviewees and talking heads here. Some of them made a lot of sense. I definitely want to go ahead and put a pin in coming around on the fact that like Giger is just like a pervert. He's just like the kid <laughs> in your elementary school class who could not stop drawing dicks, but he just happened to be extremely, <laughs> extremely talented. He's just a very talented artist who has like, sort of a child's perversion just like a a a a child's obsession with playing with themselves and creating images (laughs) of their genitals in like various bizarre situations and that's just who giger is or was and that's i also think that's fine but like it really goes to show you that if you actually have the talent then you can make the art out of anything and affect anything I did not care for Will Lynn. Every time that he was talking, he sounded like it was one of those moments where I was like, God, is this what I sound like when I'm stoned and I'm just prattling on and using words? <laughs> is this like, the writer's workshop guy? Yes. He oh, is yeah, the founder and host yeah. of the Joseph Campbell Foundation Mythological Roundtable Group of Ojai, California. Mm. which meets oh. beneath the historic teaching tree at the Ojai Foundation. Oh, would you look at that? <laughs> According to the Pacifica Graduate Institute Alumni Association website uh, that I, I have pulled up, because I, every time he started talking, Kat and I just rolled our eyes. <laughs> I was right <laughs> along there with you, yeah. It's like, yeah. oh my God. But... Uh, can we talk about how good the the lady who played Lambert is? Oh, she's so great. It's just like how she was like, that's a vagina! <laughs> like, oh my god, Is that I Veronica Cartwright? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I love her. I also love Ben Mankiewicz dressing down for this. Like, he like loosened his tie and like muscled his hair to make himself look like gritty so he could fit the vibe <laughs> instead of like all buttoned up in a suit. We should We should also make sure since we're talking about Veronica Cartwright, that we mention her involvement in the great sci-fi franchise, The X-Files. <laughs> yes. Actually, yes, you're right. Oh my god, that is where I know her from. Oh my god. I was like, I know her and not just from Alien. You're right, X-Files. Yeah, as Cassandra Spender. And I also Spender. really liked her yeah, on uh, Six Feet Under. Oh yeah. Where, where she appears in some of the later seasons. She's great in that. I mean, she's great, really, in everything. But yeah, she's she's fantastic in this. I like Tom Skerritt, him getting interviewed for this. I also really like that they spent so much time with Diane O'Bannon. You know, uh, their incorporation of footage of Dan and other people who participated and worked on this who have passed away since uh, was really interesting because I like that they interviewed their like surviving spouses as well to sort of give you even more insight because those are, especially because a lot of times, you know, you can ask an artist about their process, but asking the person that they're closest to about that person might actually be more insightful. Ask the person who lives with the artist. (laughs) And she calls him out for being an edgelord, like in the very first, like five minutes. But also she's like dedicated her life to kind of being his archivist. Like she has Uh all of his work very neatly organized and like thought about like she can present his ideas probably better than he could talk about himself 
the one thing that made me sad when she talked was that uh, she seemed a little bummed out that she never got to meet Hodorowski. Because uh, yeah. Dan O'Bannon worked on Hodorowski's Dune mm-hmm. before that project fell apart. And it seemed like a lot of the elements of that got sort of woven into Alien. I haven't seen that documentary about Hodorowski's Dune. So I don't know how much of that's covered, like how much yeah. of that ended up in Alien. All of it's covered in that documentary. Pretty much everybody just went on to work on Alien. <laughs> Which is good, you know? Like, Hodorowski assembled this, like, dream team for science fiction. So I'm glad it wasn't wasted. So are, so are we going to like, talk about Drop Alien? our lists. Uh, since I since we're talking about edge lords and apparently I have an edgy hot take amongst this quorum at least, I'm gonna go ahead and drop that my absolute worst is Prometheus. I hate it. I hate it so much. I hate it in my bones. Why? <laughs> That's the part I don't get. Because I I was talked out of seeing that in the theater because everyone hated it so much. I was gonna say everyone hated it so much, and then I watched it and I was like, oh man, I wish I had seen this in the theater. This is yeah. cool. I guess I'll say the things that I think are actually good in it while we're here. I think that Michael Fassbender is doing phenomenal original work as an Android. Uh, if you've never mm-hmm. seen Star Trek, the next generation, <laughs> uh, I can't ding the bell. CC sleeping now. <laughs> <laughs> I think there are a lot of great ideas that are not well executed. A couple of years ago, everybody got pissed because shitlord Joss Whedon had this line in uh, Age of Ultron where Natasha is like, oh, I can't have children, so who's the real monster here? And I think that Prometheus has a very similar thing where Numi Rapace's character is struggling with her desire to be a mother and so because she quote unquote can't create life she has an emotional philosophical and um like sort of thought investment in like conception and the creation of life uh i think that's kind of sexist and dumb and i don't love it but i I do think that that's at least an attempt at a thematic element that I can respect, yeah. even if I don't think that I it works. I was going to say, because like so much of the Alien series is about like moms. Yeah, I think ends, motherhood's like, motherhood. pretty consistent. Yeah, And I think, at least in Prometheus, the whole movie is about creation and origins yeah. and like creating life. In um, the Joss Whedon example, that's a throwaway line to try to give a character a quick backstory. So it's like insulting that like that's enough shorthand to give someone a one scene reason for existing. At least Prometheus, like the entire movie is about the creation of humanity. Uh, Yes. And and also, but because. All right. So I I think that using that as a shorthand, like Ali, you mentioned before, you know, Ridley Scott's an old man who's going to old man. And I really yeah. think Prometheus, with that specifically being Numi Rapace's character's whole thematic drive, is Ridley Scott old manning. I they exist sort of in a very similar space for me. And I, I understand like the line that you're drawing, Brandon, about how it's not just a throwaway; it's a larger thematic element of her character. I'm just saying it's sort of tired and not done particularly well here. 
but it's one of the things that I do respect about it because in it, even with that in mind, at least it's trying in a way that some of the other sequels are not as invested in creating that, you know, for their narrative lines. But <sighs> there's, you know, I don't know if you've ever read about what the original script treatment was for this. No, I didn't. I don't nope. care. <laughs> but I'm listening. <laughs> well, I, I never cared. To, I never cared to investigate before. I guess is what I'm saying. So essentially, the original plan was that the reason that 2,000 years ago the engineers decided to go ahead and wipe out humanity was because they sent us Jesus. That Jesus was an engineer. And humanity crucified him. And as a result of that, the engineers now decided that humanity was a pest species to be eradicated. And you remove that from the narrative, but you leave a big cross-shaped hole in it. And in a sense, like that, the fact that like it was trying to go for something as big as that, with its its weird Damon Lindelof lost era script. And you leave this big cross-shaped hole, it just makes it feel very empty and incomplete. But to me, that's like judging the movie for what it's not and what's not in it. Because I feel like the movie is very philosophical and does have humans confronting their god. I feel like if you had left that whole element in it, it would be extremely schlocky. And I'm not saying that can't work. But I think it kind of sounds like yeah, an entirely different style of movie. Right. I, in my opinion. So you can say that I'm judging the movie for what it's not doing. And and I think that to an extent that's valid. But what I'm... It, uh, there's an emptiness there. Like, there's... I can... I could feel it when I was watching it. And I could see it when I was watching it. That there was something missing. And learning how stupid the thing that was missing was did not make me like it more or less. It already felt incomplete to me. I, you know, I'm not here to be like, mm, if Charlize Theron would have zigzagged, then it, blah, blah. Like, that's not my complaint with this movie. My complaint is that I think it's kind of a very shallow presentation of what it thinks it's grappling with in a way that just uses the framework of the alien series in a way that degrades that series because you know the things that are scary in the alien and we've talked about this before is what's unknown it's what's unseen it's and they even talk about this uh in the documentary that we watched which is that like sometimes humanity gives itself some peace by like thinking about you know beyond our atmosphere everything is big and empty and calm and that maybe that's not the case And I feel like every single time we learn a little bit more about where the xenomorphs come from, it retroactively degrades the existential terror of the franchise up to that point. But that's what I love about the movie is that they go and ask these questions to get these answers about origins and like explanations and they get a wordless violence in response like the movie does not offer (laughs) that much information it's just like they found the place and they left with no information they just were squashed like little bugs yeah (laughs) i I love that i'm gonna chime in here and say that it's a different sort of terror and i think after doing alien aliens alien 3 alien resurrection you needed to touch on like a different 
theme. We've had a scary alien hunts us down for four movies, you know, and it's interesting to branch out and be like, but why? And who are these space jockeys? What's going on? I, I fundamentally disagree, though, I, I guess, is, is the problem. I fundamentally disagree that we should ever know anything about the space jockeys. But what do you learn other than that they exist somewhere? There's there's no information. We learn that they're progenitors, that they seeded life on other planets, that they created the xenomorph as a biological weapon, that they had a whole planet where they all lived like... I mean, this is getting into Covenant territory, but that they had a whole planet where they were... Covenant know, being- definitely does that. Covenant yeah, has Covenant more information. Is, but you're still, Sorry, you're still getting like a lot Covenant. of that in Prometheus. I think without Covenant, Prometheus is fine. Like, I yeah. think once you get to Covenant and Covenant's like, here's all these experiments and here's what's going on. I don't know. I just... Y'all are really not going to like I'm how like, high oh. it is on my list. Covenant definitely cheapens a lot of what I like about Prometheus. Yeah, the thing exactly. that saves it is that Michael Fassbender is so fun in Covenant and all the stuff he that does in Prometheus that's like fun, he like magnifies it so large in Covenant to the point where he's like making out with himself and playing a flute yeah. to flirt with people. And yeah, he really goes yeah. off in that one. The reason I love Prometheus so much and why also Resurrection is in my top three is because they're the ones that are the most unique. Like, yeah. like Ali was just saying, like Aliens and Alien 3... I feel like those are the ones that make Alien less interesting. Like, I feel like Aliens turns a very eerie, subliminally horrifying Lovecraftian idea into a very recognizable action horror template and, like, makes it less interesting. It's just, like, Marines running around shooting things. And it's a good action horror movie, but it's not special. Like, Resurrection and Prometheus are special movies. Like, there's nothing else quite like them. Alien 3, I think, is just a boring prison movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's I think Alien 3 is so boring. Yeah, it's pretty low on my list as well. Like, I don't understand how you take an Alien movie and you make it boring. Like, say what you will about, like, all the other movies. None of them are as boring as Alien 3. I don't understand. And then, like, her whole, like, prison romance? Ugh. Ugh. Get out of here. That would have been at the bottom of my ranking, but there is some interesting character dynamics and like there's a cruelty to it alien versus predator i want to say is equally boring um and has no interesting images <laughs> but like uh, the last 10 minutes of that movie has this yeah, like i was gonna up. say <laughs> i love the predator like the creature the predator like the whole concept i mean i love the first movie too let's be real So Alien vs. Predator gives me, like, the both best worlds in, like, the most ridiculous, like, goofy format. I put Alien vs. Predator as my second worst, but I, in my opinion, there's a big leap up in quality because Alien vs. Predator is not taking itself very seriously. It ends with this dumb sleigh ride of friendship. It has, uh, yeah, it's you know, great. that part's fun. Again, it's, you know, I think Alien vs. Predator is not a good movie, but it's a movie that I find infinitely more rewatchable than Prometheus. It's just wish fulfillment on my part, I think. Like, I want to be friends <laughs> with the Predator. It's a fan fiction. It's a fan fiction yeah. that does not take itself, it's not a dour, dour, joyless slog. 
I don't think Prometheus is joyless. It's schlocky. It's like fun retro sci-fi. That's what it's I think a- AVP is. I really like Alien vs. Predator 2, and I feel like that one has an even worse reputation. I have that one <laughs> on my list next, because I I have not seen that one since the theaters, but I also have fond memories of that one. I put it above AVP. It's a really mean suburban invasion creature feature. It's a pretty standard style of like PG-13 mainstream horror, except it's like way crueler than those movies usually are it's so mean like children pregnant women like all these people that are usually like protected from mayhem in those movies are just like eviscerated it's it's cruel and i kind of like that violation like it looks like a movie that you know what its boundaries are morally and it just crosses all of them um, in a way that's like kind of horrifying but you know it's still not like a very like smart movie i feel like if they had swapped out the xenomorph with a different creature, the people wouldn't have been as mad at it. Like, I think it would yeah. have a better reputation because it doesn't have a lot of ideas. Like, it's just like a mean monster movie. But I thought it was fun. I, I have that. Uh, so, you know, going upwards from the bottom, Prometheus and then AVP and then AVP Requiem. Not a lot of ideas. Saw it in the theaters. I actually, so if you go to Just Watch right now and you look for the Alien movies, it tells you that they're all on Disney+, Plus, presumably because at some point maybe they were, very briefly, now that Disney does own all of that, but you can't, it's not there now. And in fact, I resulted to gray market means um, to try and reacquire AVP Requiem, because I wanted to rewatch all of the ones that I had only seen once or twice before we had this conversation. I I I ran out of time, and the reason that I ran out of time is because Alien 3 is very, very long. I'll Ugh. go ahead and give you that. <laughs> it's such a slog. It sounds like you like it more than we do, though, right? Yeah. I do. Here, I'll grant this. I remember many years ago reading about Alien 3 before I got the chance to see it, because I had to like borrow the DVD from the library in secret and watch it while I was home the summer between junior and senior years because I had really gotten into like Alien as a franchise and I had heard so many horrible things about it and of course you know if you go online you can read all about what David Fincher originally wanted to do which of course they wouldn't let him because David Fincher is David Fincher now but then he was a nobody he was a music video director yeah I don't really think he's even like a vision now like it's not like I dislike his movies but I think they're just kind of what they are is that an unpopular opinion sorry i don't care about him that much <laughs> yeah i like i think that is. among people who are not us who are interested in film that he's probably more widely respected and beloved like you know i have my feelings about fight club right and it's they are not as positive as like the general consensus on fight club but i do think that it's you know, a better movie than its fandom would make you believe. I've it's heard Zodiac fine. described as like one of the greatest films of our lifetimes. Oh my God. I've also heard it described as really boring. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. The worship at his feet is a little ridiculous. It's fine. That's how I feel about all of the movies, except for Alien 3. Everything else, I'm like, it's fine. Alien 3, I'm like, uh, why does it look like piss yellow and is so boring i really like gone girl i think that's a fun movie yeah gone girl i did like that one 
I think that Alien 3 transposes everything into a new environment. I like the weirdness of this, like, prison. I do wish that it had been, like, sort of a wooded monastery, which is what the original plan was, which there's obviously still elements of that. And I don't know. I, I don't think that I have, I have alien three is, is fine in my book. I like how slow and meditative it is. And reading criticism of it when I was younger, one of the things that people always talked about was how it wasn't very successful in the U S but was very successful outside of it, especially in Europe. Huh? Huh? The criticism that I read of it always identified its European success as the film's slow ennui being more appealing to European audiences than American audiences. So, hey, I'll cop to this. Maybe I'm just pretentious and think that it's better than it really is because it is slow and meditative and melancholy. Which is so funny because most of the criticism I've heard against Prometheus is that it's pretentious. I I mean, it is. I think it's so pulpy. I know. Like, I like that. I don't know. I can't take the pretension seriously. And for some reason, it just makes me like it. Right. <laughs> like, I know it's supposed to be taken seriously, but I like it even if I can't. It's so funny to me, too, that, like, uh, you know, the European sensibility is supposed to be this, like, melancholic, solemn, like, meditative feeling um, but then they hired a European to fix what Fincher did to the franchise. Yes. They hired Janae for the very next movie yes. to make it fun again. It was so fun. <laughs> also, Winona. Oh, it's just so Winona. good. I love you. So again, to reiterate, Prometheus Bottom, then AVP, then AVP Requiem. And then I have Alien Resurrection next. So that's my... Oh that's my, my gosh. You're just like eviscerating us no see that's the thing is i love it i love it it's just not it it's it's my fifth favorite it's it's like we were saying (laughs) like comparatively there's a big gap to me between the bottom of this list and like the top five or six there's a big old gap there my number four is alien covenant because of uh fassbender no david no actually i mean i do think that he is fun in it but Look, uh, here's the thing. This one to me, I think, is like the schlocky fun one. It's very slasher style almost. Like Alien is almost like a Mike Myers type character. Whenever like they've gotten off of the planet and those two characters are like, "Mm, let's have like exciting shower sex to feel alive after this nonsense that we've lived through. And it kind of like slides down. Whenever I think about that movie, that is the scene I think about and I think about how I disliked it. (laughs) 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 I wasn't on its wavelength. I don't know. Maybe if I I thought it was mostly fine. It was pretty low on my ranking. But I do like that idea that, you know, they just swapped out a slasher villain with the alien creature and that that shower scene is also the first place my mind goes for that exact reason because that's exactly where the like norman bates guy would uh would stalk you you know um it just happened to be a, a giger sex monster instead of a, a, a man with a giant kitchen knife <laughs> and y'all y'all seem to really dislike um aliens which I, i'm a little bit surprised by i don't dislike I don't... it i think it's a normal action horror film that just has aliens in it okay 
So despite my criticisms about it being just like a regular, normal action film, it kind of is my number three and for like the dumbest reason, y'all. I love the mech suit battle. Oh, that's great. Yeah. That is what pushes it to number three is like the mech suit battle, which feels ridiculous and goofy, kind of like how I love going back for the cat. But like, I think that's the thing about Alien is there's all those like little small details that it's like you can latch onto and be like, I love that. (laughs) When we talk about the mother elements or the motherhood elements that are present, I think they're sort of minimal in that first film. You have the computer that's called Mother, but like, you know, it it's it's more just because it's sort of about an unholy, unnatural, unnormal birth, right? When we really get into like motherhood as a theme in this series, what we're the real seed for that is in Aliens especially in the director's cut, which is actually, I, I, I specifically cited that it's the director's cut on my list where it is. It's my number two. Can I just say I hate the ritual of putting every Blu-ray into the player and it says, do you want to watch the original cut or the director's cut? I'm like, fuck, I got to do homework now. Right. <laughs> like I couldn't just I watch that. a movie. Every single one has like two cuts of it. It's exhausting. And like, at least for some of them, like, sure, whatever, like, don't ever watch the theatrical Blade Runner, you know, but it's so hard sometimes. I'm like, what is, what's the difference? I It makes Aliens a little bit longer, um, but it has more, it has more stuff going on in sort of the LV-426 colony before every All Hell Breaks Loose. So you kind of see a little bit more about how those people live. But we also learn specifically about the death of Ripley's daughter, that Ripley's daughter actually died of old age, like weeks before drifting in space. Yeah, she barely missed her daughter, that her daughter spent her whole life waiting for her mother to come home. I find that that's like a thing that breaks my heart every time that she lived to be a ripe old age and she almost lived long enough to see her mother finally return, but died like in her nineties. And so you really, in my opinion, you see that a lot in the way that she babies newt in the way that she treats Mm -hmm. her, that she's trying to save the daughter that she couldn't save the first time, the daughter that she left behind on what was supposed to just be, you know, an extent it's, it's, it's about sacrifice, right? Because capitalism yeah. is sacrifice, always. Uh, in these movies, I, I know that this comes out every couple of years. Fucking Ben Shapiro is like, oh, the alien movies are woke now. But like, uh, even what? in the documentary, they we talked about how were. that they clearly are, that you have these working class people and the way they're taken advantage of by their corporation. And even this documentary gets into Yafet Kato's character uh, and um, what's his name's character? Harry Dean Stanton. Yes, Harry Dean Stanton, how yeah. they sort of instinctively know that there's something wrong, that there's sort of even like a blue collar wisdom that's being ignored and the way that like the way that tom scarrett moves in that one scene to create you know the upstairs downstairs about what they're gonna do they talk about that a lot and the thing is ridley ripley was always making this sacrifice she was sacrificing this period of time with her daughter in order to do right by her daughter and it all ended up being for nothing 
that she never saw her daughter again. And, you know, she went to work one day and never came home. And so that creates to me like a greater level of pathos with her relationship with Newt, her unwillingness to lose Newt. She can't leave her behind. It's funny, like the things it sounds like you're focusing on are just different than how my brain works. Because like, I really think of these movies as like genre exercises and like what they do with this genre material and like the variations on it. And it sounds like you really need the dramatic aspect to work for you. Cause like, I don't think about that stuff when I'm like, like the actual, like um, human to human dynamics. I don't know that those really factor into like how I rank the alien movies. <laughs> Cause like, I don't know if that's like really what I'm fixated on. I mean, the first one I definitely, definitely love that. They're just like, wait, this isn't our job? Like, you're having us do this? Like, I love that whole, like, you know, I wish they had just, like, mutineered and formed a union right then and there, but... (laughs) Spares the whole movie. Uh, No, I'm just saying, like, there is some human elements that I do really love, and, you know, some, like, the whole, like out machoing each other of like the troops and aliens that I could do without. It just like didn't even occur to me that that would be like the draw of that movie because so much of it is shoot 'em up action payoffs. And like it's like more 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 aliens just like flooding the ship um or flooding the like on the surface base that they end up being trapped in. And, you know, the big innovation for it is very technical to me. Like, the aliens can move on screen for longer and better. Like, James Cameron has a pretty good eye for just technical advancements. And it's kind of the same thing as how I think about the Terminator movies. Like, everyone's favorite is T2. I feel like a lot of people's favorite alien movie is Aliens. Like, that's the top of most people's list. Terminator is T2? And that's what I'm saying. I feel like in both cases, I'm like... I think he just made like a more normal blockbuster version of a movie I liked better. Yeah, you're right. (laughs) So I don't know. My mind just didn't even go to like the, you know, dramatic payoffs of that. Because I was just thinking about how he turned it into like shoot 'em ups which I think it's still a good movie. I'm not not really arguing against it. The human dynamic that really sticks out to me is just Paul Reiser being like a, you know, a chump (laughs) and like a sellout (laughs) asshole. I will say, I, I think that Aliens also has a lot of those sort of slasher elements too. Specifically, what we were talking about before with the shower scene reminds me a lot of the alien rising out of the water behind Newt in that like, what what is to me like a, that when I think about Aliens, that's the first image that comes to my mind, like uh, of just the whole franchise. It's that thing rising out of the water behind her. That to me is like the essence of what's scary about Alien. I don't, I can't really explain it, but that's, that's where it exists for me. So I like Aliens, uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, definitely the mech battle, but it's also the human element of like, instead of like, welcoming this person back home they just immediately put her in a psych ward because she knows too much about how fucking evil this corporation is and i like that they draw that sort of back in like after the first alien 
where you're yeah. just like, yeah. what's going on here? And Paul Reiser definitely carries that over. That same, you know, just anti-corporate criticism. Yes. I feel like we skipped ahead a little. I want to I want to take us we back did. to Alien okay, Resurrection. Okay. Alien Resurrection is so good. It's so bad, and I understand why it was hated at the time, but I think it's a lot of fun. I mean, it is bad. It's a bad movie. I, I watched it not terribly long ago, just like last Thanksgiving, and while I was watching, I was like, man, this is some real, real garbage. I rated it five stars, and I regret none of those stars. I can't help it. It's, it's I don't, fun. I don't blame you, Brandon. It's so fun. I think that's the thing. It's like, you know, I don't care if it's narratively a mess and just totally like all over the place. It's a fun movie and you enjoy watching it. And that's why it's good. I mean, it's not like it's silly by accident. Like the movie's having yeah, fun. Exactly. Yeah. And I feel like Janae was specifically hired to like make the franchise enjoyable and like popcorn entertainment. Yeah, we have less after slow the Fincher bummer. Yeah. Ironically, uh, hire a French person to get rid of the ennui. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I love uh, Ron Perlman in this. I yeah. love uh, Sigourney Weaver making that basket. I love... Uh, so, okay. One of the things that happens, I think, is overlooked in um, Alien 3 is when she's with Newt's body and they're doing like that autopsy. And Tywin Lannister is like, Dr. Tywin Lannister is like, oh, (laughs) was she your daughter? And Sigourney Weaver doesn't, like, Ripley doesn't actually say, she kind of says no. There's a really long hesitation because that's the through line. Um, You know, Aliens illuminates that thing about Ripley as it goes along that, you know, uh she's great in the first one the first one is obviously my favorite i think we're all in agreement that it's the best one then you have this like introducing the introduction of this motherhood element in the second one with the interplay between her and newt even in the regular version and the extended version of course all the things that you learn about ripley and what she's lost and kind of why she might be willing to go back and then alien 3 has this continuation where she has lost another daughter and Alien Resurrection, it's very subtle. But at this point, uh, Ripley kind of hates bioloids or synths or whatever they are, and with good reason. Yeah. And yet, her daughter figure in this one is an android. And the way that that, like, almost seems like a betrayal to her when she learns it, but she learns to move past it. I love that. Isn't the um, scene where her clones get torched like a motherhood lost moment as well? Yeah. Yeah. I remember that being like genuinely horrific in a movie that's yes. like mostly a good time. Yeah. I also don't want to discount the pregnancy aspect of the first movie, even though it's not Ripley's motherhood. Yeah, that's I was going like, to say. Like, that's a pretty major part of the first movie. And, you know, to bring this back to that memory. the documentary just like really zeroed in on. Yeah, like that's actually, I think where the documentary kind of loses its way. Um, Not to say that they shouldn't have talked about the chest burster scene at all, but like to me, the thesis of the documentary was like, let's gather all of the pre-existing myths and, you know, pop culture ephemera that led to alien being created. And then it kind of runs out of steam with that and gets distracted by 
let's recount the on the set details of how the chestburster scene was accomplished and how the actors reacted to it and what it means um, in terms of like male pregnancy horror and all this other stuff. I found all that stuff very interesting. I just thought it was kind of like a, you know, distraction from what the movie was supposedly doing. Um, Almost like, you know, the guy made an entire movie about the stabbing scene in the shower of Psycho. So it almost was like he probably thought he could make an entire movie about the chestburster scene in this and was like, let's go a different direction with it. Let's do it about like all the myths that led to Alien instead. But then all the chestburster stuff still in the movie. So I don't know. It, It just felt like a weird tangent but i i do think it is like a pretty big part of that first film like i feel like the motherhood stuff is there um just ripley's not involved really which is politically pointed in its own way because you know she is a woman who has a job and it has nothing to do with her like ability to bear children which is how most women are usually treated in movies and she has like a very like i mean including prometheus working class (laughs) sort of job you know like it's not just being like in an office like she is on a mining ship so it's not just like yeah, she's it's a tough working job. a job it's like a tough job like manual labor but you are yeah. right boomer like the stuff in prometheus is kind of retrograde in its yeah. politics even if it does fit into the larger theme of the entire franchise i guess where i'm coming from is like i like how the um alien franchise in general recalls 1950s space adventure B pictures. And I watched all those ones. I'm trying to think, I think it was, it came from outer space or whatever that one was called. It, the terror from beyond space. That's the one. Yeah. So in that one, there's like a stowaway creature on the ship um, that like comes back to earth with people. So in that one, there is a mixed crew on the spaceship of men and women, but the women are basically waitresses and nurses. So like the men do all the tough jobs, but the women on the ship are like there to serve them meals. So like they have that same big, you know, around the table lunch scene that um, they have in the first alien movie, except the men are sitting down having their dinner and coffee and the women are like pouring the coffee and like walking around serving the food. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm not saying Prometheus. I don't even know if it did that shit on purpose. I don't know. It just feels like some of the stuff is retrograde in its politics, but like that only adds to the like retro schlock qualities. Like there is kind of like a Flash Gordon space adventurism to that film that I also really liked in uh, that Christopher Nolan movie that most people make fun of. Yeah, Interstellar. Which I think is the best Nolan movie. It is the best Nolan movie. <laughs> and it reminds me a lot of Prometheus. I think I think they both have the they both kind of recall fifties paperback sci-fi pulp, like just trash. Um, but they like kind of elevate it in their like you know modern slickness. And yeah, I think uh, Alien Resurrection. Is also schlocky in the same way, but maybe even more over the top. Where you can't just you can't even deny that that movie is just silly. Like, uh, you yeah. know, you could you could pass off Prometheus as pretentious. I don't think you could pass off Alien Resurrection as pretentious uh, no. in any way. Not at all. The basketball scene kind of slams dunk in the face of pretentiousness. <laughs> yeah, it just kind of it's like take it or leave it. This is what it is. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and it is very goofy. I think that's Shanae though. Like. Not even Amelie do I see, and I'm like, oh yeah, that's pretentious. No, he's, I don't know. There's just like that, like goofballery that he's got going on. Big Bug now on Netflix. <laughs> so you know, 
above Alien Resurrection, we have Alien Covenant as my number four, which we've we've talked a little bit about already. You know, I like the slasheriness of it. That one, fe- even though that one has more answers than Prometheus, it feels more mysterious to me with this sort of like, it feels like an alien movie because you've got your crew, you got a bunch of them in suspended animation, you get your distress signal from parts unknown, you go down to the planet, everything there is fucked up. And then a, a lady with short brown hair fights an alien on a spaceship. Like, it's just, it's kind of, it is what it is. It's it's very back to basics, I think. Except for Michael Fassbender. He is on his own <laughs> planet. Well, he is. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> He's doing his thing. I mean, that one, I have uh, issues with it. I think that it makes Prometheus better in retrospect. Um even though I know that not uh, y'all probably don't feel that way, but I... That's the exact opposite opinion I have, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I... Um, if it had gone... Like, I, you know, I... It has its problems also. I'm not going to pretend like it doesn't. But I... You know, there's just something that's kind of fun about it. It manages to put the alien in new situations, and you got to fight it, and then there's the stuff that's happening, and, you know, David's being a real creep... And it has sort of an aliens element to it as well, because just as Ripley starts out mistrustful of Bishop and aliens because of her experiences with Ash in the previous film, you have this character, David, that you know as the audience you cannot trust. And then you have this other Michael Fassbender robot who you're kind of always waiting for the other shoe to drop and for him to turn out to be evil too. Just like you kind of are with Bishop all the way through aliens. And then you get the surprise reveal that actually the worst part, the worst person aboard is, is not the unfeeling, uncaring robot, but it's, it's Paul Reiser looking out for the company's bottom line. And so that to me makes for a more compelling, uh, conflict than anything that's happening in Prometheus with their interpersonal stuff. It's it's a more interesting story to me, even though I have a similar issue to it with as I did with Prometheus, which is every time we learn a little bit more about the really bizarre and precise circumstances that have to fall into place for a xenomorph to come into being. Like, they talk about the parasitic wasps in the documentary that we watched, and how those were sort of an inspiration for the alien being, that there's this thing in nature that has evolved to be, uh, from our anthropomorphic uh, perspective, creepy, gross, and terrifying. But it's really just nature doing its thing. And every time we learn a little bit more about how the alien didn't evolve to be this way, that it was created like this, that David tampered with it, that it's got this and that, and he's been doodling and diddling around in a cave learning to play the flute and mess with alien genomes, makes it less interesting and scary because it's less like, oh, this is an accident that could befall anyone. It's like, oh, this is a planned, you know, this is because somebody meddled with that which should not be. So I still have that same problem with Covenant that I have with Prometheus. I just think it's a more fun interesting ride along the way personally i think i would have more of a problem with that if the first alien didn't include the space jockeys see that's the thing is that to me the space jockeys should be a mystery 
The whole yeah. thing should always remain completely mysterious. And if they got to the space jockeys and there was like an info dump in Prometheus where like all of that was explained, which I feel like happens in Covenant. I feel like there are info dumps that explain the the whole entire backstory. Then I would have been annoyed in Prometheus, but it, it never happened. It, it was like, we got here. We're ready for the answers. The space jockeys are finally going to be explained. And then just nothing. <laughs> and then just violence. See, I feel like that is what happens. Like in my like recollection and my experience of Prometheus, it is that. But not y'all's. And that's fine. We can we can, can all we, uh, at agree. least all agree. Uh, and I know Allie didn't like Covenant very much, but can we at least all agree that just let fucking Ridley Scott finished this trilogy like the man's earned the right to finish his stupid just Christ parable I wasn't crazy about Covenant doesn't mean like I wouldn't rewatch it or that I hate it it's just you know not my tip top like like I said I think the only alien movie that I absolutely cannot stand is Alien 3 and it's okay because we can just skip it just skip it go straight to the resurrection I just don't think like I really care what they do with the alien brand. Like, I'm not going to be so up in arms about any show or movie they greenlight. Like, you can never ruin the movies that already exist. That I mean, you can hide them away so that they're hard to access. But, like, Disney can't fuck up Alien retroactively for me. Because Prometheus already has? Yeah, that's what I meant. No, I'm just <laughs> yeah, like... Sorry. The movies are... They still exist. Like, you can't undo a movie that's on the record. But yeah. let the man finish the trilogy. He wants to really bad. Yeah, just, <laughs> just let, let him, him fucking it. do it. Just let him do it. <laughs> like I said, it just, the whole documentary just gave me like oh, a new respect for him. Like the storyboards, handling the camera, and like how Hans Audi was. I was like, oh, dang. Well, I guess he's pretty good at his job and might actually be more interesting of a filmmaker than I thought he was. I always thought of him as a very good visual stylist. Like, I really like um, Legend, which I know a lot of people oh, don't like because it is yeah, beautiful is but empty. I like it. But it's it. so beautiful that it's good. So, like, so much glitter. I love it. The style is substance um, in that case. But I guess my respect went up for Dana Bannon watching this and watching Life Force recently. And it's funny that Ridley Scott got tied up in Dana Bannon's malformed baby and is now still fixated on it all these decades yeah. later. Dan Bannon's dead, and really Scott's still playing with his toys. Uh, <laughs> he can't quite get the puzzle worked out because uh, Disney won't uh, let him do it. Uh, it's it's a pretty normal order from here. You got number three is Alien 3, number two is Aliens, and number one is Alien. You know, that's, wow. <laughs> that's it's, you it's really real simple it. for me, yeah, at that point. I feel like... Uh, the consensus generally is that Aliens, the the James Cameron one, is the best movie in the franchise. There's a lot of people who think very that. Silly. And I also agree that it's very silly. It is silly. I mean, as much as I like all of them, like, nothing is the original. Like, for me, nothing can touch, like the like atmosphere, the way it was put together, just like the horror of it. I mean, there are so many movies good. that try to do that exact eerie tension on a spaceship. Yeah. There are a few that are good. I mean, I, I really like Event Horizon because I um, grew up with it. I don't know if it's actually a good movie. Probably not. I also love it. And I have seen it recently enough to say, 
I don't know either, but I love it. <laughs> right. <laughs> From the director of Alien vs. Predator. <laughs> but... So many bad films from this from the eighties in particular, just riffing on that alien setup just makes it so clear how easy it looks and how hard it actually is. Yeah. Like that movie is doing something very special. I love at least three of these films. I like most of them a lot. And I don't think any of them can carry a full documentary about all the subliminal implications and references in their creation the way that the first one can like you could endlessly talk about the first alien movie and all the things that like brought it into the world and it feels like it carries that weight with ease i don't know if any of these movies have that much going on i will go ahead and, and reiterate my defense of aliens here which is that i don't agree i think that um you could talk about aliens just as endlessly whether you're talking about specifically the sort of feelings that everybody had post-Korea and post-Vietnam in 1986 and the way that the Marines in that movie are supposed to in some way be representative of these conflicts that the United States was involved with and clearly lost, uh, even if that it's not a specific one-to-one because it's not like, you know, <laughs> the alien isn't Whoa. the Viet Cong. It's not you're, a one-to-one comparison. But you're really digging in here. <laughs> I think that. I think that. So here's my th- my thing. I the same. I, I think that you are right, Brandon, because I do feel like uh, several years ago there was a podcast called The Canon, and I forget who it involved. There was a lady who was very smart and a guy that who any episode that you listen to, you're like that guy sounds like a sex pest, and he turned out to be. Uh, so it was Amy Nicholson, and I think it was that guy who was a sex pest that was involved with screen junkies, but don't quote me on that. But their whole thing was that they would take two films of a similar type and argue about which one should become part of the canon of great films, even though in many cases they were uh, equally good. It was just, you know, an opportunity for two critics to have this debate and talk about these movies in the same way that, you know, our podcast is an excuse for us to do the same in a lot of ways, but not without the specific thesis or the specific intent. And I remember there was an episode about which one was better, if it was Alien or Aliens. And I remember the guest on that one who was pro-Aliens was Kumail Nanjiani. And I did not like their argument. I did not like the argument that was being made on behalf of aliens. I would say that they both belong in the canon. I know that wasn't the point of that podcast. You had to pick one. But I think that you're right that people do consider aliens to be the... It is the more widely popular one because I think it is more accessible. It's more readily entertaining. Yeah. But I don't begrudge anyone who's who for whom that is their favorite. I think that that's the, I, I consider that to be a valid choice, even if I don't agree. Uh, I don't think there's any such thing as an invalid choice. Yeah, like no. If someone's favorite alien movie was Alien versus Predator, I'd be interested in hearing why. And I would love to argue with them. I would love <laughs> to hear all of this person's reasonings and be like, you know what? I also like that movie, but because I love the Predator. <laughs> It's not about the alien for me. I don't even think of that as an alien movie. I think of that as a predator movie. That's fair. The alien is kind of just like 
kind of like an Alien versus Predator two could have been swapped out with any other monster and it would have no yeah. effect on the uh, the story. Well, I I feel like I blew up the format of this podcast. I completely exploded how long we usually talk, what we usually talk about. I feel like I fucked up <laughs> the format. So now you have to bring it back into the other podcast and have a dialogue. Well, I don't even know them. if we got this out of our system or not. Like I feel like I could continue to argue about these like eight movies um, forever, um, but I also have to go to bed so that I can go to work tomorrow. So I'm going to bring it back around to memory, the origins of Alien, and just ask y'all if y'all would recommend this to people. I mean, it's just sitting there on Tubi. Um, unlike the first Alien, you could watch it while scrolling on your phone and just halfway yeah. listening to what people talk about and not miss much. So I'm going to recommend it the same way I recommended the full core documentary. Like, if you are any bit interested in how movies are made and, like, history and stuff behind them, it's interesting you know it's worth like you said hearing yeah i concur i i also think that it was a lot of fun um obviously if you've never seen alien you should probably see alien yeah you should also probably see aliens and then listen to who you like most about where to go from that and then uh (laughs) uh enjoy at least at least after having seen alien and aliens come back and enjoy memory were y'all at all drawn to the like kitschy sci-fi 50s stuff? Because I have an endless yes. appetite for that. Well, okay, I <laughs> I have I also have like it the terror from beyond space on VHS tape. That's a okay, favorite cool. of mine. Like I I love that movie. I'm pretty sure I watched that as a small child with my grandparents. So <laughs> I I do love that stuff like a lot. I th- I thought Queen of Blood was pretty good too. That one was the one I was most intrigued by watching this to be like, oh, I think I want to watch that movie. I was going to say I wrote a whole bunch of titles down from this movie, so. It was one of those Roger Corman movies where he took two Soviet films and used all their special effects shots and then added um, some American people to like look out the window and point at the uh better funded Soviet movies out the window of the spaceship. Um, so like it's very cheap, but the um alien creature in that movie is really fun. She's got this whole like Juno Birch mean drag queen thing going on. The one I wanted to do for this episode, uh, when I thought about doing this a year ago when I first ranked all the alien movies was Planet of the Vampires. I thought that would have been a fun meeting ground. It's just like that one has not been available for free in the past year, and we kinda had to get this out of our system so we can move on, I think. Uh, so maybe someday we should watch the Bava film that they reference in this as well. Uh, I was very, I felt validated to see that referenced here. Like I watched all these movies cause I was trying to see what influenced Dan O'Bannon to write alien and life force. Um, and it was kind of cool to see all of the ones I watched on the screen <laughs> in this documentary. I was like, okay, I guess I was on the right track. They, they did not reference the green slime, which was the other one I watched. Um, in that one, it's like a Japanese, American co-production it's from Toho Studios and in that one the creature you know looks more like a Toho like kaiju style monster but when you um, cut into its flesh it has corrosive blood Um, it's also a stowaway on the ship so I feel like that one the green slime could have been included as well it's the one omission from my uh, research last year I'll also say that I uh, recommend the book voyage of the space beagle which is not mentioned by name in this movie but it does appear 
whenever they're giving sort of like one of, one of the things that I think is really cool in this movie is there's a lot of documentation that floats past on screen. We didn't really talk about it, but there is a surprisingly deep archive of drafts and images and concepts that have been saved, I guess, by Diane O'Bannon and, and other people. Cause I don't know why she would have any of like Ridley Scott's drawings, but like, you know, people love alien. So there's always, you know, there's been a market for like alien ephemera for a long time. But one of the things that we do see float past is like, there's a, a list of things that would be considered influences. Cause they talk about how Dan O'Bannon didn't say, Oh, I, I never stole anything from anyone. I stole everything from everyone. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. I did like that. And there's an AE Van Voigt novel, the journey of the space beagle that I read in high school based on the recommendation of our mutual friend. Uh, I'll only give a first name, Tommy, who was like, Oh, alien is just a ripoff of this movie. And he's not wrong. It is, a, it is clearly an influence on it, but I also would give it a recommendation. Also, um, I told Hana we were doing this episode. You know, I kind of announced what we're doing next at the end of these. Um, and she gave me a book to read that I've been going through this week called Becoming Alien. I'm going to read the full subtitle. The Beginning and End of Evil in Science Fiction's Most Idiosyncratic Film Franchise. And that one does a pretty good job of explaining through critical essays how the themes of Alien are carried out into every sequel. So, like, it kind of takes the themes, like, even into Alien Resurrection, like, very seriously, um, echoing just, like, how the Alien franchise became so idiosyncratic and had its own little offshoots, um, but has, like, a very strong thematic core. So, I don't know. A good slim read. One essay per film. Uh, I think the whole book's, like, 113 pages. Very quick and very good critical essays on Alien as a franchise. Well, next week on this show, we are going to talk about bad vacations. That was our <laughs> overriding theme of the episode, <laughs> uh, because Hannah, who I just mentioned, wanted to talk about last year at Marion Bad, which I've never oh. seen, and I'm excited to watch for that episode. Yeah. Putting that Criterion subscription to use, something I should do more often. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, in the show notes for this episode, because we referenced it a lot, I'll go ahead and post a link to my alien rankings from last year, which is, I think, how this conversation got started. I think I, I think I need to give Boomer room to vent and list his own ranking after um, praising Prometheus so profusely in that. Can we can <laughs> we project. also include my uh, my dissenting opinion? Sure. All right. I'm satisfied with that. Uh, and in the meantime, check out SwampFlix.com. I have a whole backlog because of that library apocalypse and other projects of movie reviews. So I've been posting one a day lately, even on weekends. I've been going seven days a week. So check out SwampFlix.com. Plenty of reviews going up. And we'll talk to you all next week about some Criterion prestige. Bye, everybody. Bye. When I woke up today, the air was very strange. Couldn't feel my skin And there was evil in my bones I tried to speak but found That I didn't have a voice It was a prison like the one You would find in the twilight zone And I feel just like Sigourney Kill the
Her 